Good morning, and as Tim said, welcome, glad you're here, glad to see new faces, and uh, my name is Brian Habig, and I'm one of the pastors here, So, uh, and that was Tim Udodge leading us in worship, but we're working our way through the book of Romans, and we're well into it, we're past the halfway mark, and we're picking up where we left off last week, so I want to invite you to look in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 13, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. There's an interesting dynamic going on right now where we are culturally, cultural moment, that it seems like as as things get faster, faster through tech, and even just things are so much more transitory. People don't stay in the same city, the same town like they used to. You can move around the world so much more readily. That as you see that speeding up and that you have to keep up with more, and social media pressures you to keep up with the new, the now, the current, 24-hour news cycle, whatever, that there's a real craving for the old. And it it sort of manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. I mean, for some people, it might be yoga. And not just the exercise of it, but really like knowing the philosophy of it and the the history of it, the language of it. For some people, it might be, they might get a tattoo of an ancient word or an ancient symbol, Just, just something... I mean, I might do it for a host of reasons, but it may be that, you know, there's just so much about my, my life that's scattered and unrooted and, and, and uh, unharnessed, and I just, I just want something old and ancient. I want an identification with something that's been around. Uh, it could be anything. It could be, it could be liturgy that people want, that they want an, uh, an ancient form of worship. It could, just all kinds of things. It could be an ancient skill. You know, it could be some craft that you learn that's something that people have done for hundreds of years or thousands of years, just to make you feel like I'm hooked into something older than me. And here's what I want you to think about before I read the passage. That's, that's actually a good desire. But the question is, why is that inside of us? I mean, why, why would we crave older things if, if, uh, if they're not as advanced as the stuff that's just developing all around us? Why would we want this old skill, this old word, this old symbol, this old way of doing things? And what I hope we're going to see is, when I read this passage, is that Paul's going to use a metaphor to convey that there's something wonderfully attractive about Christianity that hooks into that desire. That if there's something in... You know, and I, this, is, this is relevant for all of us, but if you come from a family that really has been marked by fragmentation that maybe you really don't know the story of your family maybe uh, before your grandparents because it's just, too, it's just too broken apart. I think this would be especially valuable that when God works in a person's heart to bring that person to himself, he makes them part of something more ancient, really, than you can imagine. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. And I want you to note when I read this, when Paul says... In this passage, when he says you, he's talking to Gentiles. When he says they, he's referring to Jews. Very important. When he says you, non-Jews, Gentiles. When he says they, he means Jews. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You for worship. And even as Tim prayed, some of us uh, in our hearts came running this morning. Some of us came limping in the door. And even right now, it's, it's hard. It's hard because we're worried. And it's hard because we're tired. It's hard because we're, we're wrestling with unbelief or maybe we're just covered up with unbelief. And so, Father, uh, for us, for your sheep, would you help us? Would you be our great shepherd? Would you feed us, even we who wander off? Would you feed us with your word? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I, I want to start off with a contrast between two things. And the, the first part of the contrast is, I just read about this recently. I read the history of developing the product Febreze. You know, Febreze, the like, you know, kills bad, bad odors. And uh, long story short, the, this, uh, you know, like most things, it was, it was discovered by accident. And, and um, chemical engineers or whatever, they found that this thing neutralizes bad odors. And so uh, they, they start developing it, and they figure out a way to, you know, put it out there to the masses. And, um, and when they were doing some of the test research, they, they worked with a woman who worked with animals. And she was single, and she wanted to be married. And she smelled like animals because she worked with them so much, even at her home. And she said, like, like through t- they had this on video, with tears, her explaining, Febreze changed my life by neutralizing these bad odors. And so this research team is just going, I mean, they just see dollar signs. We're going to make a billion dollars with this stuff. And they put it out on the market, and at first, it hardly sold. So they go back to the drawing board, and they start doing more research, and they work with all these focus groups, and they start seeing a trend with people who do buy Febreze. 
And, and, and when I read about this, they talked about one woman in particular. She said that when she, when she went into her boy's room, you know, she would get it orderly, she'd make the bed, she'd pick up things, and then when it was just sort of done, it still smelled like boy. And some here know of what I speak. So then kind of the last, the last little moment of the cleanup is like she would smooth the covers and then just... And like, almost like this room is done. And this, this, this team that was you know, working on marketing and, how to, and sales and all that, they videoed different people who really bought a lot of this stuff. And they saw all of them doing that. And they had this big aha moment. And the aha moment was, we've been selling this thing as it will neutralize bad odors. Let, let's, let's stop that. Let's put a little more smell good in it. And let it almost be the symbol of, we're done here. And even the commercials play to that. When you see it, at least I haven't seen them lately, but when you see a Febreze commercial, when there's this orderly room, like where you could photograph it for a catalog, you'll see a well-put-together woman, and she'll just kind of kind of smile at the camera and walk off. When they did that, it started flying off the shelf. Now, why is that? Because it's really brilliant. They tapped into a story that Americans want to be true. And the story is, you can be on top of things. Americans love that story. We, lo- we want to pop that story in our mouth like a Jolly Rancher and roll it around. Like, I want to be, I want to be in capri pants and just kind of go, and just, I'm on it. And even if my life is never there, I want that story to be true. Okay, now that's side one of the contrast. Here's the other side. Last year in women's Bible study, we looked at the life of Abraham. Patriarch. He's, he's, the, he's kind of the fountainhead, humanly speaking, of Israel. And in his life, every week what we saw is that God is he's throwing, it, he's throwing him off balance. He's, he's moving him toward confusion. He's unsettling him, and he's not giving him all the answers he wants. And it was interesting how week after week after week, the women in this women's Bible study are kind of looking up and in their own words saying, that is my life. Like, I want the story of my life to be the woman who's kind of looking up going, I'm on top of it. I'm put together, and my house is put together, and I'm on top of it. The way, my, the, way the story of my life actually operates. The way, the way the story of other Christians, I know, the way it operates is that God moves us toward being thrown off balance and confusion. And he says, trust me, like he said to Abraham. And that even though I want the first story to be true, the second one is where I live. And what, what I want to say to you is that makes total sense in light of this passage. And this is not to throw Febreze under the bus. They're just tapping into something much bigger than them or us. Uh, the American story is attractive. It's not true. You cannot be on top of everything. The world is too fallen for us to be on top of everything. The second one has always been the story of God's people in a fallen world. That we get thrown off balance. That God moves us into things that confuse us. And, he, and in His love, He says, I know you don't understand it. I want you to trust me. And we resonate with that one. 
even though we want the, the first one to be true, right? That makes sense in light of this passage. Uh, it's amazing what Paul does here. He uses a, a powerful metaphor to say, when God works in a person's heart, Jewish, ethnically Jewish or ethnically Gentile, he brings them into something ancient. Where literally, when you look at not just things, but people who went way before you. And when I say way before you, I don't mean the 1800s. I mean way back into B.C. that you completely resonate with their experience. That there's a reason for that. So let's look at this image of a tree. And um, let's just look at it this way. The basics of the tree, let's kind of just get our bearings about what, what are the parts of the tree, what is that conveying. But then I really want to look at the branches of the tree in particular. So, first off, the basics. What, what, what kind of tree is it? And Paul says this more than once. He says, there is this ancient, cultivated olive tree. An olive tree. What, what is it symbolizing? It's symbolizing Israel. And I mean, Israel. If, if you haven't been coming, this is just a little, uh, little soundbite. This, this section of Romans, there's the section, chapters 9 through 11, it talks a lot about Israel, even ethnic Israel. And, and now, again, if, if you're visiting and you feel like you're just kind of coming up to speed on this, when I say Israel, I'm not so much talking about the country founded, in the, you know, reconstituted in the 1940s. I mean ethnic Israel, ethnic Jewishness, all right? The tree is Israel. Um, that, let, let me read you a quote from the Old Testament. There are other passages like this, but here's one from Hosea 14. Uh, God is talking to Israel as a people, not just to one person. And he says, his shoots, he may, when, he's speaking singular, but he means all of Israel. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. There's other passages that sound like that. Sometimes believers, the psalmist by himself, will say that he's an olive tree. It's an ancient symbol, all right? So Paul's using a metaphor from his Bible. What, what are the parts of this tree? Well, you've got the root, and, and it says it in the singular, the root. The root does a couple of things. Look in verse, uh, look in verse 16, excuse me, in verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Now, a couple of things there. Paul says there's this cultivated grand olive tree, and that's really a rich symbol, by the way. You know, there's some things you can plant and it will flower that year or it'll bear fruit that year, but some things it takes years for it to produce the thing that you want. And this kind of olive tree in this, kind of the, in this part of the world takes years to produce the way people want it to. So the image of a cultivated olive tree is, you know, ancient, cared for, rooted, fruitful. There's also these wild olive shoots. Who's that? Paul says, that's you. Now, go back. Who's he talking to when he says you? Gentiles. There's the cultivated ancient olive tree and there are these wild olive shoots. And Paul says this, look at this tree. You see that root? The root 
stabilizes the tree. The root nourishes the tree. The branches don't nourish the root. Vice versa. The branches don't stabilize the root. Vice versa. So there's that. But then there are these branches. And Paul says there's essentially two kinds. There's natural branches. He says that twice. There's natural branches. And there's unnatural branches. What... If the tree is Israel, what would the natural branches be? Jews. Ethnic Jews. What would unnatural branches be? These these wild olive shoots that are over here, and I'll talk about this in a second, and then they're attached to the tree and unnaturally become part of this cultivated olive tree. What are they? Gentiles. Now... This, the, the image is rich, the passage is rich. Before we go any further, let me say this. What is that image already saying to us? And this jives with the rest of the Bible, but the image is, is depicting it. What is the image saying? The church does not replace Israel. Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, in the plan of God, do not replace Israel. They expand Israel. Very important. That can actually radically impact how you read the Bible. And we'll talk about that more toward the end. But let's look at these branches because that's, that's where Paul focuses most of his attention. There's the natural kind of branch and there's the unnatural kind of branch. And, he, and he's going to say that two things are true of both kinds of branches. Both kinds of branches can be removed from the tree. Both kinds of branches can be added to the tree. Now, let's look at the removal first. Both kinds of branches can be removed. He says, the natural branches, the Jews, can be removed from the olive tree. Now, start in verse 19. Paul's talking to Gentiles, and he says that you will say... Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul grants, that is true. They were broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. Now, we need to be really clear about what does that mean. Because Jews believe in God. I mean, Jews were unique in the world religious scene because what? They believe in one God. All these other religions believe in multiple gods They've always believed, at least when they were true, that there's one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the world, God of the Hebrews. The Jews believe that. Paul says they can be cut off for their unbelief. What unbelief is he talking about? Let me ask you this. We're in Romans. What belief is just hugely important in the book of Romans and hugely important in the New Testament? Belief in Jesus. Faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, is the one that the one true God sent to rescue sinners, cleanse their sins, bring them to the Father. If an ethnically Jewish person doesn't believe that, Paul gives the image of he or she will be like a tree, a branch that naturally should be attached to that tree and is cut off. 
from that tree, the olive tree. But the other kind can be, uh, can, can be cut off too. Keep going in verse 20. Paul says, you might say, hey, you know what? God cut off natural branches to make room for me. And Paul says, I grant you that at one level that's true. And then he says this, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. And what does that mean? What would, it, what would it mean for an unnatural branch that wasn't at first attached to the tree to be attached to the tree and then removed? What that would look like would probably be the Gentile who hears the good news about Jesus. He's the Savior that we all need. He can take away all your sins. And this person professes belief in Jesus and is baptized and brought into the institution of God's people, but really deep down doesn't believe. She she doesn't really buy it. And that begins more and more to manifest itself in her life. God says that through His Word that that's like an unnatural branch attached but then eventually cut off from the tree. Both kinds of branches can be removed. Both kinds of branches can be added. And this is the good news. Let's start with the unnatural branches, the Gentiles. Look in verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. He uses this language about grafting in. Some of you know gardening, know farming, you you know about how to do this. I learned more about Palestinian olive tree growing this week than I ever intended to. But, you know, what it's, it's essentially is taking an, another growth that could be a sprig, it could be a branch, making a cut in the tree, inserting it, maybe packing it with mud, wrapping it, and until eventually the tree grows around and receives this branch that doesn't naturally grow there until it's part of the tree. Like the root system feeds it. The root system nourishes it. The, the tree stabilizes this thing that wasn't always there. Paul says, hey, if you're a Gentile and you come to see, because God is merciful to you, and you come to see that you need the Messiah, and He brings you to believe in Him, you're that wild olive shoot. And it's like God went over and went snip and cut into this tree and packed you in there, and now you've grown into it. Should that make you cocky? God went over, when I was over here, and attached me to the tree. He grafted me in. But then Paul says this. What about natural branches that aren't attached? What does that mean? What if if you were an ethnic Jew and you rejected the Messiah? And so in God's economy, you are cut off from the true tree. 
and then God changes your heart. Because what example would immediately come to mind? Paul, you know, the man who wrote Romans, that God works in your heart and causes you to see Jesus is the Messiah. I don't need to reject Him. I need to entrust my whole life to Him, my whole future to Him, to save me. What happens when an ethnically Jewish person does that? Paul says, that is like a branch that had been cut from the tree and thrown aside, and maybe it's been over here for months. Maybe it's been over there for years, dried out, dead as a doornail. It's like God takes that, goes back to the tree, and grafts it in. Now, if you'll hang with me for a second, I'm going to be a little more teachy, but this is really great. Um, Up till about 100 years ago, New Testament scholars, commentators, they just beat Paul about the head and shoulders about this passage. Because they said, that's not what farmers do. That's not what gardeners and cultivators do. You don't take something over here that's weak and put it into something strong. That's not how you graft. You take something strong and you graft it into what's weak. That's how farmers did it in that day. So this thing, you know, like, Paul's a city guy, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, like, he doesn't even have urban poultry. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. And, uh, and this New Testament scholar named, named uh, Ramsey, William Ramsey, and this is a really great story. He went into New Testament studies and archaeology to disprove Christianity and was converted because everything he studied checked out even the archaeology of it. William Ramsey came across the writings of a guy named Columella, not a household name. And he's an almost exact contemporary of the Apostle Paul. And he wrote about stuff like farming, rustic life in his day. And he said, actually, this was a practice in his day. And get this, it was done by a gardener, by by a landowner, when you have a tree with a healthy root system, but for some reason it's underproducing. It has a healthy... the, the The tree's healthy, but for some reason it's not as fruitful as it could or should be. And when you hear that, all of a sudden the image just comes alive. There's not a problem with Israel's root, but she's not bearing fruit like she's supposed to. And what does God do? He starts grafting in branches that sort of, strictly speaking, weren't supposed to be there. It was always God's plan, but from the Jewish point of view, they're not supposed to be there, and the tree starts to bear fruit more and more and expand and grow. Um, That's true, but you know what? Even though that's true, there's one part that still doesn't work, and it's almost as if Paul is writing it with a wink going, I know it. I know, the analogy doesn't work, does it? You know what it is? Even though what I just described is true, no one ever went over to like two-year-old branches that had been pruned off a tree and then tried to reattach them. They're so dead and dried out, it can't work. And it's as if Paul is looking at us smiling, saying, I know, that would be a miracle, wouldn't it? Because like, what is his life? You can almost see him smiling in verse 23. He says, even they, remember they is the Jews, even they 
if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. And it's as if he's looking at us saying, and I'm exhibit A. What do we do with this? And um, I want you to think about at least a couple of things. One is that this, this metaphor is sort of a cautionary tale. And cautionary tale doesn't have to mean that we all leave frightened. But, but when Scripture warns, let's hear the warning. The cautionary tale is you can be in the institution and not get it. You can be in the right institution and still have a heart of unbelief. I mean, think about this famous incident of Jesus sitting with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And here's the thing. Nicodemus is in the right institution. He's descended from Abraham. He knows what tribe he comes from. He's a Pharisee. He wants to commit himself to the law and the prophets. He believes in the one true God. He believes that true worship is in the temple. He sings the Psalms. He tithes. He's in the right institution. And he's talking to Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, if you're not born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And here's how Paul would put that. Not everyone who's a Jew outwardly is one inwardly. What does it mean to be a Jew inwardly? It's to do what God has always wanted sinners to do, to look to Him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and say, Help! I cannot cleanse myself. Have mercy on me. That's always a good idea to do that. He's in the right institution, but he's not Israel inside yet. Let me throw out a, a, a different example. Have you ever heard the name George Whitfield? Spelled like Whitefield. Uh, God really used this man on both sides of the Atlantic in the 1700s. If you've heard the, the, the phrase, the, the first great awakening, you'll see his name when you read in American history. And uh, and he would preach to anybody. He got thrown out of the church, and he would preach to anybody. He'd preach in churches that led him. He'd preach out in the field. There there are eyewitness accounts of him preaching to coal miners. And he said, you knew when God's word was getting to him because you would see like these creaks on their face when the gospel touched their heart. He'd preach anywhere. But sometimes he preached to church people, both in England and in the American colonies. And he's talking to people who are in the right institution. Overwhelmingly, Church of England. They were christened. They identify as Christians. And he would say to them, yes, but you must be born again. It's as if he's saying, institutionally, you're attached to the right tree, but has your heart been touched? By God's mercy. Do you really believe this? You can be in the right institution, but untouched. And again, I I don't say this for us to leave on eggshells or for some ominous cloud to hang over you this afternoon, but could it be that you are baptized, that you are on the rolls of the church, 
But the reason you don't bear fruit is because deep down you, really, you don't really believe this. And what I'd like to say to you this morning is not, you know what, I think the order of the day is not to scold you. I think the order of the day is to say, well, you could believe today. You could believe today. Like, if, if I've gone through all the hoops, but I've never really been so vulnerable as to look to God and say, help, forgive me, transform me, I don't know how you do it, but whatever it is you did through Jesus, do it to me. You could do that today. But the last thing is this, is um, <laughs> I, I had a, you know, we all say the word like too much now. Like, the word like functions almost as if it's the comma now, where and he was like, and she was like, and I do it too much, and we all do it too much. In fact, I have, I have a friend was he, he went to Hampton, Sydney, in Virginia. He said one day he was in his English class and the professor snapped about this, where one of the students was talking about something. I don't know what he's summarizing some essay, and, he's, and it's like this and it's like that. And the professor just snapped and went, It's not like anything. Enough. Stop using that word. I, I could almost see Paul when he lists, and I'm going to aim this at, at my, my crowd, when preachers stand up and say, you know what, we need to know our Old Testament because it's, it's like our family history. I think Paul would finally say, it's not like it. When I write these letters and I tell you that if you believe in Jesus, you become a child of Abraham, I'm not kidding. You become part of the tree whose root is the patriarchs. You become a child of Abraham. You become part of the olive tree. And do you know what that means? Now I end with this. That means that what, what God's letting us do is for the rest of our lives when we read the Bible, and for Paul the Bible is what we call the Old Testament, that when we read it, instead of getting moralistic stories out of it, what we see is ourselves that instead of looking at the, the story of Abraham... No, let's, let's say David. Instead of looking at the story of David and saying, mm, yes, I need to be brave and face my giants too. Okay, we, sure. Sure. But what about later when he commits adultery? He just tasted so much goodness of God, seeing God's promises come true, and he commits adultery. He kills off one of his most dedicated soldiers then do we want to be like David? But you know what? When you see it through the lenses of this doesn't replace Israel. Believers in the Messiah, Jew or Gentile, expand Israel. It lets you read that story and say, what, what a hot mess we have always been. And look how God deals with us. Look how patient He is with us to bring us back again. Wow, we need great mercy, don't we? To see yourself in the story. Listen, if you place your trust in Jesus as your Messiah, your Savior, 
you become part of a tree that is cultivated by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you come from utter fragmentation, or maybe you know your family all the way back before the Mayflower, you just don't like it. You come from the most amazing story. You are in the most amazing story. You are part of the ancient tree cultivated by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we would pray that for any here who, in particular, uh, they have been baptized, they have professed faith, they are members here or elsewhere. But deep down, they, they, they feel it, that their hearts are untouched. Would you open their eyes? Even right now, would you open their eyes, open their hearts? If they're frightened to open their heart, would you give them courage to open their hearts? And bring them to yourself through your Messiah. Thank you for this great tree. Thank you for your mercy to branches, natural and unnatural. Thank you that we gather here, not because we ought to be here, but because you're a merciful cultivator. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have the opportunity now to praise the cultivator, the triune God. Let's stand together and sing the doxology.